0: Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 76, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Are we teaching reading the wrong way? And could a perfect attendance award actually hurt attendance? Stay with us class dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story each week we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education plus we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community this week robert ward is back and he's going to tell us how to bring more empathy inclusion and altruism into the classroom Hello everybody, Nick here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how you doing?
1: I am great.
0: It is the week of Thanksgiving. It is. Are you going to be ready? I mean, you have like the turkey whole thing. Do you have like family coming over? Is it your house, your sister's house? What's going on? It's
1: my house, and I've ordered it all online. So the whole, all the food? All of it, Okay. pretty much. I mean, I'm making oh. a few sides. I'm doing vegetables, but a lot of the other stuff I'm not doing.
0: Okay. I'm not judging.
1: <laughs> don't, don't, don't judge.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm frying a turkey. So my mom, I'm she, getting a fried turkey. My mom hurt her hand, and like, I, just between us, I think she's a little depressed, like, cause she's always like done Thanksgiving yeah, at her, her house, big, yeah. yeah, her big day, and she had surgery and stuff, and and, and she can't get it wet. So Thanksgiving's at my house. They're still like, you know, contributing some, but we're certainly trying to lighten the load. So, uh, so the
1: real test is going to be now that you've taken Thanksgiving. What will happen next year?
0: Will I mean, be I'll give back it back at your house. Yeah, I'll give You'll it back. Give it back. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not gonna take That's it.
1: That's always like a big feud, you know. A lot of times, really? people want. Yeah, like a lot of times, people want the, you know, once they have children and they're older and they've established their own family, they want to have the traditions at their house and then just have the grandparents come visit. You yeah. know, because then they they want to be that staple. Right. You know?
0: Yeah. It's weird for us. We, my brother and my parents. We all live in the same neighborhood, so it's not like we're like traveling across the country or anything like that. But uh, mafia, yeah, 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 right. So, (laughs) yeah, pretty. My my kids think my father's in the mafia. He's not, but (laughs) but it
1: is a little sketch that you all live right around each other too. Yeah, feeding the fire. (laughs) Right.
0: What do you know? What's going on in the world of education?
1: Well, I am pretty excited about this topic. Okay, the New York Times released an article saying that we're teaching reading the wrong way. And there's science to back it up. And they, I mean, it was it was a great article. There's yeah. going to be a lot of teachers out there that are going to read it and be mad. Yeah. Or they're going to read it and be like, yes, exactly. I mean, what does the New York Times know other.
0: about reading?
1: Well, they're basically just education. stating the facts yeah. um, based on science. Yeah. And tons of research that has proven that the way the brain learns to read, and we are not teaching reading the way the brain learns to read. Really? And so... Um they kind of called out universities. They blamed it on the universities. They say, you know, that the universities are training teachers in this whole language approach. Okay. And they're saying there's no science to back it. Now, of course, the universities say we don't choose to look at the data from their research because that's their science and we have our own science. So, for you Nick, there's basically two two different sides you can be very strong on decoding, which is, you know, phonics, or you can be whole language, which is if you just surround the children with reading, if you, if you have them, uh, you cultivate a love of reading. And
0: and I will say, like, you go look on Twitter, whole reading is like what it's all about. Like, it's, let let the kids read, right?
1: Right. You're one or the other. And so when, when I graduated back in the day, I had to write a philosophy statement of which... Which one did I feel that I would use in my classroom? I remember a job interview once where I had to say, "Right, you know, what is my approach to reading strategies? So you would say you're, you're a phonics or you're a there, whole is, language. Is,
0: is that like a wedge issue? Like is, it, like, is it like asking somebody, like, do you believe in global warming? And then it, you're afraid, like, how to answer it because
2: of, you don't know what the other person believes? It's absolutely in the
1: field of education among lower education teachers. Right. Yes, they have a, an opinion. Wow. And there is, you know, now, I, I will say that the New York Times article says that the whole language approach kind of got debunked back in 2000, right. but that the universities have not changed their, what they are sending forth as far as this is how you teach reading. So basically, I remember when I was asked in a job interview, I said I would try to do a little bit of both, that I would, you know, definitely have a strong yeah. amount of phonics in my classroom, but also... Yeah, You're you were know, hedging your bets. Right. <laughs> well, that's just <laughs> how I am. I'm right. going to definitely, you know, try to do both sides because I knew that there are different learners that learn different ways. Mm-hmm. But the research that the New York Times is putting out there and basically shoving in the university's faces and saying it's about time that, you know, the our future depends on it is that the kids need explicit, systematic, phonics instruction of decoding and sounds and sounds that are connected to letters and that yes you should cultivate reading through a love of reading and yes you should constantly let the children read and show reading and have word walls and all those things sure but don't do that until you have a strong foundation of phonics
0: so, so they're saying like, I guess the, the way the article sounds like they're saying whole reading is winning out across the country, and they're saying this is wrong. Is that kind of... The, well,
1: they're, they're definitely saying yes, that, that teachers are not teaching reading the way they should be teaching. And when they get down to it, okay, why are your students not able to read? Why are six out of 10 fourth graders are not proficient in reading why is that well th- then they look back at it and say well because they they don't know how to decode the words they don't know they they were taught to guess what the word is and based on context clues or memorize sight words and word walls and so they're they're saying no this is why we have six out of ten kids that are not proficient hmm. you know because And and that a third of the children are basic in reading. And so they're saying this is why, because they were not taught phonics. And they're saying it's because the universities are dragging their feet that there should be a course on phonics that teaches teachers how to teach phonics. I never was taught how to decode? How to teach. Yeah, no, fun. no. Now I did have a literacy class that was really an interesting class, and I loved it. You know, because everybody loves books. I mean, you love shiny little books and mm-hmm. Caldecott awards and all that stuff. But, but as far as when I if you know, and I I didn't teach those younger grades. But if I had been faced with a parent saying, "I don't know what to do. We, we're doing everything. You send home. We read to our child. Our you know, but they're not getting it," I would have to say as an educator, I wouldn't have known exactly where the problem, where the disconnect was, because I was not trained in early phonics. Side note, the school that I teach at now, which is second and third grade campus, it is mandatory that every teacher on campus take a week-long seminar, and they are there from eight to four every day for a week And it's called, I think it's called Letters and whatever. Anyway, it's some phonics training. Mm -hmm. And it is like they are teaching. I mean, it is work. And they are teaching. And so those children have substitute for the entire week while their teacher is at phonics training.
0: I'm going to try to play, you know, the person who's listening doesn't agree with you. And and I'm not going to do this well, probably. But um, I'm thinking, you know, no, I have this classroom and I have these students who... You know, I, I watched them. They were never interested in reading, but when I let them pick the books that they want to read and do what they want to do, they suddenly got interested and they were curious. And the, and because they were curious, they figured out the words that they didn't know. They looked further into it.
1: Yes, that I do think you're always going to go farther with a spark. Absolutely, and I think as a teacher and a parent that in kindergarten and in pre-K. They need to be hitting the sounds and letters, super, super, and the combinations of letters and the sounds that they make. They need to be hitting that super hard. It's not very glamorous. It's not. But then, yes, then pull in resources that are on that level that spark children's interest but as far as just saying, well, if you read to your children, and if you do these sight words, and if you, if your child is constantly reading, and you are reading to them, they will naturally learn to read. That is a whole language approach, and science says no. Learning to talk is a natural, a natural progression, but learning to read is not. You have to learn the sounds and the. So there's there's going to be a one or the other. But I but I took from the article that. A lot of teachers do see the need in the lower grades, especially kindergarten and first, to really buckle down with direct instruction on phonics, but Mm -hmm. they have not been taught how to teach phonics. And so they're having to backtrack.
0: I I wish we could have brought in your friend, um, had I known um, this was where we were going. Remember your friend Lisa Ainsworth Mm -hmm. that was on the show? That was back in um, episode uh, 35, I believe, and it was uh, titled Let the Children Read. Right, And And it kind of was, I think, this... Whole reading approach, am I wrong? Yes, but
1: it is important to state that Lisa teaches third and fourth grade students, and I do think at that point
0: you can you've
1: got to really help them find an interest and help them, you know, choose what they want and let them. But they've already got the basics down in K and one. So
0: we're saying K and one's really that's what the New York Times is saying. That's where the phonics Mm -hmm. has to happen. Absolutely can't start before then, really. Right, and so they're
1: saying that there's a lot of teachers that are not prepared of how to teach phonics in K and 1 and they're doing a lot of whole language stuff in the classroom and word walls and all these wonderful things but they're not it's not connecting the dots inside the brain and the brain is therefore not learning the sounds and how to decode a word and then by the time they are in 3rd grade they don't have a love of reading because they're not good at it so right. they don't have it's it's work it's hard work
0: Well, so uh, you've done a very good job explaining what the the article says. Where are you on it? You think they're right?
1: I do. I I mean, I I know that there's a big divide between whole language and phonics. Phonics is not glamorous. I could not be a phonics teacher. Mm -hmm. But if I was sending a youngster through school right now, I would want them to have phonics. And my two boys, we did phonics. We did phonics at home. I ordered a summer kit. I mean, I was wanting to make sure that they knew the phonics. But I also knew that they didn't have a strong phonics program, they were more whole language. So I knew that, okay, well, we got to get some phonics in there. So I I do agree, and I do think that if you ask any new teacher if they felt prepared for what they taught in their new field, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, in their first year of teaching, they would, a lot of them would tell you, "I no, I, I wish that we had, I wish a lot of the classes had been more about teaching us how to teach these subjects instead of us making these packets and these grandiose plans that are not realistic that, are, right. that you don't have the opportunity to to use in your classroom. instead, I, I, nobody taught me how to teach a child how to divide. Nobody taught me how to teach a child how to decode a word. And I, I think a lot of teachers say, hey, teach us how to get it across to youngsters. We know right. how to do it, but there's a very big difference in knowing how to yeah, do something and sure. then being able to explain it to a child.
0: Right. And sometimes if you're really good at something, it's even harder to explain. Oh, uh, I mean, absolutely. Take, take Michael Jordan, for example. They say he made a horrible coach because he was so yeah. darn good and he didn't understand why everyone else couldn't do what he can do so easily.
1: Right. I've always felt you know? like that's why I was a good math teacher because— I'm not a math whiz. So I had to know the steps. So therefore, since I practiced those steps and had to know them, then I can easily relay them. But it always baffled me when there was, even in my own class, a student that I would be teaching that would just know the answer. And I would ask them, how do you know that? Because at that point, I didn't even know the answer. I had to work the steps still. And they were like, I just know.
0: (laughs) So, So switching gears, how was your attendance when you went to school?
1: How? What? Like? Yeah, me your as attendance. A pupil? Yeah,
0: were, yeah. Did you show up? Like all? Did you? Were oh, you the kid yeah. that like never missed?
1: Yeah, very rarely did I ever miss.
0: Did you ever get one of those like perfect attendance yes, awards? Yes, I did. Did it? Did it make you? Did you continue to have perfect attendance after you got the award?
1: Yes, and then I have a twin sister, I should say, mm-hmm. that had terrible attendance. Absolutely does that terrible attendance. And even in the high school years when we could drive ourselves to school, she was had terrible attendance, and I had great attendance. That's
0: that's funny. <laughs> and my
1: mom listens to this, and she's going to be laughing.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Because she's a regular listener of the show. I know. Okay, so there's. I got to give credit to where I heard this. It was. Um, you ever listen to NPR? It's uh, Shanka. I, I always struggle with the last name. Shanka Vadampam? Shanka. Shank- Shankar Vadampam. <laughs> I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> Vanamana- anyway, he's awesome. He's awesome. He's He does a lot of their... Um, he does a podcast on MP- NPR called uh, Hidden Brain. And, and I mean, their tagline is A Conversation About Life's Unseen Patterns. And um, he spoke with... Uh, somebody by the name of Carly Robinson, who's a PhD uh, candidate at Harvard, and they did research on attendance. And they conducted the research with 14 school districts and about 15,000 middle and high school students, so a lot of kids. Yeah. And um, they started to say, well, what happens when you give out that you know, record, that monthly attendance award to somebody? Does that mean that that person continues to have good attendance? And what they found was overwhelmingly it dropped off. Wow. So they believe the reason why is it has an opposite effect when they get the award they aren't necessarily they relax. Yeah, they aren't necessarily rewarding, you know, good behavior. The rewarding behavior that went above and beyond. Uh-huh. And it signals to the student that they are doing something above and beyond their classmates and it also they believe the award gives the signal that the school had low expectations for their attendance. And as a result, they start to pull back and slack off um, once they get that award and say, you know what, like all my classmates, you know, there's no penalty for them. And all I'm getting is a certificate. And apparently... Well, now
1: I can see that. Yes, I can. you know, October is the attendance booger month, like to where you have the most um, absences. Um, My principal is a hoot and he promised the students at our school that if we had 96% attendance or above that he would spend an entire day on the roof of the building and not come down and they as they go to recess and from Building the building and car line and bus line that they would see him just stuck up there on the roof of the building, camped out. I mean,
0: let's be honest, isn't that kind of a reward for some principals just to kind of hide out on the roof? <laughs> of the
1: day?
0: Like, I don't not know. have to deal with anything. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like, i just They be were like, so
1: excited. They were trying so hard to to get that to make that happen because right. you know, but you know, attendance is a big deal. And you're right. Probably if you came to work every day for a year and you didn't miss anything and they say hey good job here you go here's a ribbon yeah you'd be like what i think i'd much rather take a day off so maybe they do need to give them more than just a little certificate
0: even when they were doing this research they thought well maybe you know people don't want to be perceived as a teacher's pet or a goody two shoes or whatever label you want to put on it so then they repeated the research where they mailed the certificates home and kind of did it under the radar same results yes and it's just something about that, I guess, yeah. you know, just made people say, hey, you know what, I guess since there's no penalty on the other side too, this is my own thoughts, not necessarily from the research, you go – I mean, they missed school, and all I got was right. this piece of paper.
1: I think times have changed. I think from when we were little, perfect attendance was a really big deal. And when you were standing up in that line, there were a bunch of people standing up there with you. Yeah. I think now everything is so fast-paced, and there's there's so much going on, and people are trying to go to Disney when it's not the crowded time, so they're right. going to go in the middle of the month, you know. Right. So, <clears throat> Nick, order going. Yeah, so, you got to do what you got to do. So... I think that that is why attendance has, you know, being absent has become a little more I mean,
0: you look at like high school sports, like these kids sometimes, especially when you live like in in an area where things are spread out, they're playing games an hour, hour and a half away. They're not getting home from their sporting event until after midnight. Mm -hmm. And then they're expected to be at school at seven or eight a.m. Like that's rough. That's hard. And
1: their coaches are expected to be at school too. Exactly. That's a long, long day.
0: Yeah, and usually the coaches probably even have the longest because they got to make sure every kid gets picked up. Right. And and they were driving the the bus. Right. So
1: they weren't snoozing on that bus like some of those players were. They were driving the bus.
0: This This is probably true. Well, are you ready for the uh, bright idea? Yes. We have um, a gentleman who has been on the show before. His name is Robert Ward. He has a new book out. and His new book is all about empathy, inclusion, and altruism in the classroom. Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment is a teacher, author, and founder of the Rewarding Education blog. For more than two decades, Robert Ward has taught English at middle schools in Los Angeles, and he's authored five education-related books. His latest is called Teaching the Benefit Mindset. Moving Empathy, Inclusion, and Altruism into the Forefront of Education. Robert, welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be back.
0: Yes, and uh, for anybody who's wondering, maybe missed your first interview, it was about 40 episodes ago. It was episode 36. So if somebody wants to go back and uh, and listen to our conversation back then, that, of course, is online on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Um, but today, we're focused on the benefit mindset, uh, this this idea that you have that you really are connecting, I guess, Uh, an idea that already existed by some researchers and you're applying it to education. Is that correct?
2: Yes. This was a concept developed by the Australian researcher, Ash Buchanan. And I have, you know, it's the benefit mindset can be applied to business. It can be applied to a lot of things, sustainability, regeneration, environmentalism, altruism, but I have synthesized it for educators.
0: I had never actually heard of the benefit mindset. So let's first uh, bring our listeners in um, to what this is about. I really like it. I think it applies, like you said, to other things. I think it applies just to everyday life.
2: Absolutely. It is is a, a way of approaching life. Just like Carol Dweck's growth mindset is something that parents can use, teachers can use, students can use and everyday people can use.
0: And as I understand it, it the benefit mindset is there was, a, I think, a, an area in the book that I read where it said, it's not about being the best in the world, it's about being the best for the world. Is, is that correct? Am I understanding that right?
2: That is a quote from Ash Buchanan, and that is what really drew me to it. I had originally written a an article for Edutopia about the growth mindset It was entitled Growth Mindset is Not Enough, that while I totally agree with the tenets of the growth mindset, I wanted to also say that, you know, strong skill sets and finding purpose and meaning in education were equally as important. And Ash Buchanan over in Australia put a comment on there and he said, you know, loved your article, but have you heard of the benefit mindset? And I thought, I don't even know what that means. So I checked out his website, BenefitMindset.com, which I encourage everybody to look at because there are great articles and resources on that website. Um, And he and I have had several Skype conversations. I've written articles for Edutopia and Education Week and on my blog about the Benefit Mindset and that quote that you're referring to, not being just the best in the world, but the best for the world. Really captured me and started transforming the way I think about education and teaching,
0: which leads me to my next question. As I was reading um, through your book, I, I saw that you kind of talked about the the world that we put students, kids, uh, in right now is is a lot about measuring them by grades. I think you use these these four G's. It might have been more, but it was by grades, garb, gadgets, and gold medals.
2: Uh, that's that's the way. Um, most of us and, and students define success these days.
0: And when you look at that, there's, there's not a whole lot about being the best for the world in any of those things.
2: That's exactly right. And so what the benefit mindset does is it expands on all those things. So what I write in the book is that developing self-confidence and self-efficacy are very important, but that should no longer be our end goal personal success should only be a beginning. Now how can I share my passions? How can I find my purpose in the world and use it to share and benefit the rest of the world?
0: And so as you look in the classroom, what can a a teacher, an educator do to, to kind of try to guide students that direction?
2: Well, that's the main part of my book because my book is research based. There's a lot of science to back it up, but then I give a wealth of practical strategies. And I think, you know, Nick, sometimes things come to us at the right time. I could not have written this book five years ago. I could not have written this book 25 years ago when I, when I started my career. I now have the experience to offer some really powerful strategies in the book, um, strategies that you can use with the youngest students all the way up to high school. And we just need to, as educators, not just be teaching students how to do things. How is very important. We always talk about in education, the big ideas and the essential questions of education. But what I want students and teachers to do is think more expansively and deeper and think about this question. How do my knowledge, skills, and learning experiences inspire and assist me to be of inspiration and assistance to others? Suddenly, education is infused with purpose. It's infused with meaning. It's infused with why. We need to start asking why are we doing these things? Why are we learning these things? And how is it bigger than just me?
0: There was, I think, a point in there that I read about um, some advice to parents. Um, and you could apply this to anybody, but one thing that I think you are encouraging parents to do is when you have a child, ask them, what's the one thing you did today for others? Exactly.
2: And I talk about a lot, a lot how parents can model the benefit mindset for their children. You know, donating and volunteering and being of service to others, it can't just be a grudging service, a grudging duty that we put on once a month, once a Saturday for two hours. It's gotta be something that we love. It's gotta be something that we do together. And it's gotta be something that's meaningful to us. There are a million ways we can help out there are a million problems in the world. So find that one thing or those few things that you're interested in, and maybe that you're also good at. And so now you're applying your skills, you're applying what you're good at, and making it for something for the common good and adding to the well being of others. And it might just be one person, it might be your community, it might be something that you're sharing online. But parents can A lot of parents do volunteer work, but how many parents take their children or do it as a family activity? And every person in the family can decide the way they want to give back and you could do service on a rotating basis. So this week, this month, it's Johnny's time to pick the way we give back and be of service to others. Next week, it's Mary's time. Next week, it's dad's time. Next week, it's mom's time. And everybody feels like they they are finding meaning in what they do.
0: And I love that. And, and I would... Um even say this, I think, um, from my opinion, it's when you look at doing service for people, it doesn't always have to be something huge. It could be, you know, helping someone load their groceries. If you're really trying to identify one thing every day, I don't think any of us have the energy to, to do massive projects, but, but doing those little things and then saying, reflecting on, you know, how did I help somebody today? Or did I help somebody today? Um, you know, did I help my friend with their math homework in class or solve a problem? Um, would you agree with that?
2: Um, I not only agree with that, I appreciate you pointing that out. Because sometimes we get overwhelmed as adults and children, certainly, we see these massive problems, and we don't know how to help or how can one little person help. But incremental progress, community progress, you know, collaboration, that helps. But what you're also saying is, on the individual level, when we have acts of kindness. And I don't even want to say random acts of kindness anymore. I want to say intentional acts of kindness, where we're putting that at the forefront of our thoughts. And we're thinking, how can I make somebody feel good? Just think about those three words in the subtitle of my book, empathy, inclusion, and altruism. If we can start focusing on those things in education, Kids will transfer those into their daily lives.
0: You highlight a survey, and I don't have the exact name of the survey in in front of me right now, but I think you were looking at a survey that was done in 2018, and you compared it to the the same survey done in 2008. And um, you talked about how the respondents of the survey, uh, which were educators, acknowledged worries about... Um, management of student behavior, student mental health issues, absenteeism, lack of effective uh, adult supervision at home, and student poverty, which are all pretty dark responses, I guess. And that those were the responses from 2018. But then you talked about in 2008 how there were none of those same responses from these educators. So it's almost as if, I guess what you're saying is somewhere over the past 10 years, um, the teenager or the student's life has become darker for lack of a better term am I, am I interpreting that right
2: yes that it's it's a big research study so there is a, every 10 years there is a joint study by the national association of elementary school principals and the university council of educational administrators so these are principals responding to a survey every 10 years and in 2008 none of these things were major factors as responded to by principals. But now principals' major concern is students with emotional problems. So what has happened in the last 10 years that principals are, are noticing that, whoa, student achievement and student well-being and achievement and well-being certainly are linked. All my writing has been about attending to the needs of the whole child. And for them to say, there's there's a problem here. We, We are noticing students with emotional problems. So I go on in the book to talk about teen depression. But actually, when you look at the research, it's not really depression that is the major problem for children today. It's anxiety. Kids are overwhelmed. Kids are finding no real purpose, no real meaning. And in this interconnected global village that we live in and with so much screen time and so much social media it seems like kids are ironically more isolated than ever
0: do you place the blame on that do you think that's what it is the the social media and the screen time that's causing that anxiety
2: it could be it could be a cause but we also are seeing that Parents and educators are starting to coddle kids a lot. That we're seeing kids with self confidence, but we're also seeing kids that are self obsessed. It's not really that they're selfish, it's that they're becoming self obsessed. There's a pervasive narcissism. You know, we call it social media, but it's not very social. It's not about interacting, and it's certainly not a lot for kids about interacting on a friendly level. It's a lot of bullying, it's a lot of shaming, and it's a lot of comparing ourselves to other people. And sure, that happened throughout history, but now kids are, are getting that 24-7. And you can say, oh, well, you know, they can cut down on their social media or they can be more selective about their social media. But like it or not, social media is a big part of kids' lives today. And that big part is making a lot of kids miserable. So,
0: so looping back around, I guess, or, or trying to to summarize this a little bit, it's almost as if, in your mind, that if students would not so much focus on that narcissism, maybe unknowingly, you know, by using, uh, posting a picture on Instagram and seeing those likes happen, and maybe start to reflect more on what they're doing for others and, and building a community, and, and you feel like that will just be healthy as is, right?
2: Perfectly stated, Nick. Yes. Yes. I mean, this book is not about blaming or even finding causes. This, is, this book is finding solutions and alternatives. So again, there's nothing wrong with improving an individual's self-confidence and self-efficacy. There is nothing wrong with personal success. Those are all great and wonderful things. Because if you think about it, how can I be of benefit to others if I have no self-confidence? If I have nothing real to offer? So all that personal development that we've been working on and, you know, working on in a in a very wonderful way the past maybe 10-15 years, all right, now let's expand that. I I don't use the word paradigm shift in this book because I I want to I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And as you remember, Nick the reason you did the first article with me was because i had written that article for education week about the education pend- pendulum and how i'm i'm just sick as a 26 year classroom teacher of okay now it's whole language now it's phonics now it's this now it's that you know all of those things have their advantages so let's take everything that we know that's good and let's just push it a little bit further and not have it be so me based. Let's have it. We based, you know, Nick, doctors are now starting to prescribe compassion and volunteerism and altruism just as much as diet and exercise. Those things have scientific research based advantages that you can feel instantly happy, instantly better, increase your well-being by getting out of your own head and doing something kind, nice, productive for somebody else.
0: That makes actual complete sense that that the doctors would be doing that. Now, you, as you mentioned earlier, you've been writing and and studying the whole child for for years. Um, If I understand this right, you almost feel that the benefit mindset made you revise how you look at the whole child.
2: Yes. I've had, like I said, I've had several Skype conversations with Ash Buchanan in Australia. And when I was talking to him about writing this book and how, you know, I think that the benefit mindset fits in, you know, perfectly with my writing and concept of the whole child, the social, emotional, soulful, academic parts of each student he looked at me and he said, I think you need to redefine what it means to be whole. And that kind of took me aback. And I thought about it and thought about it. And I said, yes, we need to add altruism to those components. Let's talk about the we in me, that me is very important, but I'm, I'm bigger than me. You know, Scientific American just came out with a groundbreaking article um, asking, what if oneness was a real thing? What if oneness is the underlying principle of the universe? That That's a big thing. That's a theological, philosophical thing that a magazine like Scientific American thought that is important enough to explore. And there's, there's scientific... Research backing it up, that when we think of ourselves as part of a bigger community, when we put inclusion and belonging and welcome and finding a community, those, those are very, very important things that add to everyone's well-being, not just the individual, but everybody around that individual.
0: Yeah, well, Robert Ward, it is uh, definitely a great read. It's a quick and easy read. If anybody wants to grab it, again, the book is called uh, "Teaching the Benefit Mindset: Moving Empathy, Inclusion, and Altruism to the Forefront of Education." Uh, if somebody wants to get the book, what's the best way to do it?
2: Best way is to get it on Amazon. I'm happy to say, after just being released for a week, it's Amazon's number one new release in the category of experimental educational methods. And let's make this experiment something that becomes a reality in every classroom.
0: That's great. Congratulations on that, by the way. If somebody wants to keep up with Thank you, you uh, online, I know you have your uh, your blog, which is uh, rewardingeducation.com, correct?
2: Um, Rewardingeducation.wordpress.com.
0: If somebody wants to follow you on social media, what's the best place to
2: catch you um social media you could find me on twitter at rewarding education
0: Uh, thank you again so much uh robert and uh best of luck with the book and again uh highly encourage everybody to to read it even if you're not in education i think there's a lot to take away from this and just uh applying these principles to your life in general
2: that's a high compliment i really appreciate that nick and thank you for this opportunity
0: That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter. To search for us by typing in class dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lyssa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ortigo and I'll talk with you next week.
1: Class dismissed.